Hello, thank you for joining us. We are proud to welcome you to our special series, Across the Rainbow, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about gender equality, its past, its present, and its future. I'm your host, Lee John Greco. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Shannon Shaw. He's a visiting research fellow in theology and religious studies at King's College London. His article is Ethnicity, Gender, and Class in the Experience of Gay Muslims. Dr. Shaw, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So just to start off, uh, when Sadiq Khan and other Muslim MPs voted in favor of same-sex marriage, what did that reveal about Islam in Britain? Well, I think that was a real moment that um, went remarked in some circles, but not others, because up to that point, um, the debate around the, the kind of responses towards, you know, uh, LGBT rights and gender equality that people assumed that religious groups had was antagonistic. People just assumed that if you were a person of faith, if you were someone who was religious, you would oppose LGBT rights. And a lot of that had come from the opposition that the mainstream churches, especially the Anglican Church and um, the Roman Catholic Church in the UK had towards same-sex legislation. And the assumption was that, you know, Muslims, Islam would be equally hostile as well. And to be fair, those were the sorts of statements that we saw coming out in the media from lots of spokespersons from these religious traditions. But I think what the vote from the Muslim MPs, and most of them were from the Labour Party in the UK, the fact that they voted in favour of same-sex legislation shows you that actually the debate is so much more complicated. And it also shows you the kind of bias that is there in countries like the UK. So when we talk about religion, what religion are we assuming? You know, what what does this religion look like? It probably looks like the establishment, white, patriarchal, male-led church, the Church of England or, you know, the Anglican Church. Um, There's very little room to think about, you know, A, the diversity within Christian denominations and also what's happening in other faiths, other religious communities in the UK. So to summarize, I think what was significant when this group of MPs voted in favor of same-sex legislation, it showed that from a Muslim perspective, they were able to separate what they saw as a religious wrong or a religious, you know, the religious sin of homosexuality in Islam, let's just say that. They were able to separate that and their feelings about it with their belief in equality and social justice and what is a civil right. And, you know, the corollary to that, can you criminalize something that someone sees as a personal sin? So they were able to make that move. Like I, as a Muslim, I might still have doubts about whether it's okay to be gay, to have gay marriage. But as a citizen of this country, of course, I believe in everyone's equal right to marriage, right? So that's what they were saying. But this is this doesn't come out of thin air. It's also related to where they are in the political spectrum. 
these are Muslim ethnic minority MPs within the Labour Party, which has, you know, by and large, a socially progressive agenda. So this is how they're situating their response to same-sex marriage and gender equality as, you know, people of a minority faith and ethnicity within this political party. So this interplay between religion and politics is really interesting. And finally, it just shows you that these, you know, we can't ignore the majority-minority dynamics. Islam is a minority faith in the UK. They are minority MPs within you know, a major political party in the UK. This sort of vote could happen here. I don't know if it could happen, say, in a similar parliamentary setting in a Muslim-majority country, let's just say, under similar circumstances. Can you elaborate on that last point exactly? Why do you think it's able to happen in the UK, not somewhere else? I think specific to the UK context, before this bill went through Parliament, this country had already been through debates about the Equality Act. So it's the Equality Act of 2010, um, which was preceded by the Equality Act of 2006, which, you know, it does what it says on the tin. It's about equality and non-discrimination. It's about protecting you know, certain characteristics or group identities that have been marginalized or discriminated against in the past. And I think there were difficult discussions that had to be had even then. So um, thinking about discrimination against religious minorities, for example, putting that alongside talking about discrimination on the basis of sexuality you know, in the in the crafting of the Equality Act, in all the discussions leading up to it, you had spokespersons who were lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender having to work alongside spokespersons from Muslim communities, trying to think of a way to make this act workable for everyone. So they had had those discussions beforehand within the context of a liberal democracy. So these different minorities, religious minorities, ethnic minorities, sexual minorities, were already sitting at the same table. So by the time the same-sex marriage legislation was tabled, you know, a lot of that work was already done. So people like Sadiq Khan, I think, who were part of that previous discussion, had, say, a shorter distance to travel then to, to make that, you know, that logical leap that, you know, as Sadiq Khan has said publicly, you know, I as a Muslim, I have my religious views about this, but you know, as a human rights activist, as a labor politician, as a citizen of this country, I believe in equality, right? So that's the context of the UK. So for your research, you spoke with men and women who identify as gay, lesbian, or bisexual, uh, but you didn't cover transgender Muslims. Why is that? Well, so to, to preface my answer, I really have to say that before I embarked on an academic career, I was also an independent journalist in Malaysia and was involved in lots of human rights and social justice activism there. And in my work in that field, I, of course, you know, was in touch with trans communities and trans activists, especially in my work on HIV and AIDS and human rights and abuses by, you know, law enforcement, which included the police 
and the religious authorities in Malaysia in what were called, you know, moral raids. You know, they'd raid people or, you know, uh, public spaces, they police public spaces for infringements on morality laws that apply to Muslims. So in that sense, I had already been in touch with trans communities in Malaysia. But there are differences because this very this was a study on how Muslims who are regarded in a certain way under Islamic legislation respond to that kind of Islamic legislation. And there's a difference between how uh, same-sex relations are treated in some Muslim communities compared to the issue of gender variance or trans identity um, or being genderqueer. So the sorts of religious rulings that um, cover issues that we see as um, having to do with trans communities are slightly different and they have a different history in Muslim contexts. So uh, the, the clearest example I can think of is the Islamic Republic of Iran, which still has the death sentence for homosexual relations, same-sex relations, but where um, sex reassignment for trans people is legal. You know, it's still classified as a sort of mental disorder, but it is legal for someone who is trans in Iran to seek sex reassignment. And we see that, I mean, Iran is a Shia majority country, which is a kind of minority strand of Islam globally. But we see that even within Sunni majority countries, such as Pakistan and Bangladesh, where there is recognition of something called the third gender, even while there are laws that are stringently anti-homosexual. So this is the historical context that we can see in different Muslim countries. And the country where I come from, Malaysia, I mean, once upon a time in the 80s, there was recognition as well of this kind of, you know, the, the, the vocabulary that was used wasn't that they were third gender or trans, but there was a recognition of this kind of gender identity and even some sort of legal status. But that's been rolled back um, over the decades. But, you know, the, the same-sex, quote-unquote, homosexual stuff has a different legacy, and that's tied to British colonialism as well and how sexuality was regulated under, you know, British administration and then post-independence as well. So, yeah, so, so there are differences, and I didn't want to mix everything up and just regard everything as the same. And, you know, this was one research project, so this is what I decided to focus on first. Yeah, that makes sense because that's a lot to unpack. I, it seems, I guess, that the distinction that those countries make, whether it's Malaysia or Iran, is one issue has to do with gender and another has to do with sexual orientation. And so I guess that's how those cultures make those separations? Yes, I think that's one. And what, what maybe my work addresses, possibly indirectly, is how, you know, the, the concept of, um, you know, the, the way we conceive of same-sex relations now is that it's it's people of the same gender and you know same sex assigned at birth kind of having a relationship with each other 
Um, and, you know, the stereotype, for example, in countries like Malaysia is that, you know, this is a masculine man having a relationship with another masculine man, which suddenly seems like a Western import. I'm sure it's not, but that's how it's portrayed now. Whereas traditionally in those sorts of societies, there have been same-sex relations, but they've sort of had um, a bit of gender variance in them as well. So if two men or two women were together, traditionally, people would still identify a kind of gender binary, like who's the more masculine one, who's the more feminine one. And that's how it would make sense, you know, um, in a more traditional setting, let's say. It might have not have been universally accepted, but that's the prism through which people would see it. And I think there is still a kind of acceptance. Um, it's quite rare now, just because of the political, the political developments in these countries in the last few decades. But I did find situations like that, even when I was in Malaysia, like same-sex couples where one is identifiably more masculine than others, you know, suddenly it becomes a bit more acceptable. And that's that's even like what some of my participants in Malaysia would say to me. They're like, yeah, we're fine. We're both men, but we both know that, you know, like I'm the masculine one, I'm the husband, right? So they'd say things like that. And yeah, and I think that's not how the frame of LGBT rights, you know, that's not how we're framing it in, say, Western liberal democracies. It means something else here now, right? So I think there's that kind of baggage as well. How does intersectional subordination describe the experiences of several of the gay Muslims you interviewed for your study? I think to answer that question, I have to talk about maybe what was the dominant assumption I was trying to address? What were the stereotypes I was trying to challenge? And there are several to do with LGBT people, to deal with you know, Muslims, Islam, religious minorities. But I guess the dominant stereotype I was trying to challenge is that Islam is inherently and monolithically opposed to LGBT inclusion and LGBT rights. And that, you know, the, the assumption is that therefore all LGBT Muslims are victims right, of this tyrannical religion that will just never change, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess that's, that's the premise I was working from. And I was trying to find data, more, you know, qualitative lived experience data that spoke to this, you know, and perhaps challenged it. So what I did find was, yes, there is this dominant understanding of Islam that says, you know, homosexual relations are not allowed. It's a sin, you know, you can't condone same-sex marriage and so on. So that's one issue. There's the doctrinal issue. The layer underneath that is that, but that doesn't affect all gay Muslims in the same way. It depends whether you are, to put it crudely, a cisgender man or a cisgender woman. If you're a woman, you suffer from the same kinds of, you know, uh, patriarchal discrimination that other women would face as well in your society. I don't care whether that's the UK or Malaysia, there is still that element. You know, you get policed for the way you dress, you know, where you hang out. Um, you might experience different opportunities in the job market and so on. So that's the gender stuff. So it doesn't affect 
gay Muslim men and women in the same way. I mean, I've, I've already talked to you about the, the trans element that was um, different in my research. Then there's also social class. Um, so uh, do you have access to higher education? And after you have access to higher education, what sort of job opportunities do you have? What sort of employment opportunities, um, financial security, uh, do you have a place of your own, you know, that you can feel safe in? Do you have access to online communities? Um, do you have your own mode of transport, you know? So all these things affect how visible you are, either within your community or when you step out of your community. Um, and also your vulnerability to, um, you know, policing, whether it's official state-sanctioned policing or whether it's community policing, you know, it, it doesn't hit everyone in the same way. And on the face of it, it seems like, well, you know, gay Muslims, gay Muslim men and women in Malaysia might have it more difficult in Malaysia because there are laws that are explicitly homophobic and transphobic there. And that's true, but they find ways to navigate that. And because a lot of the people I interviewed in Malaysia are part of the ethnic majority, and a lot of them are middle class and professional, they find ways to, you know, sort of navigate the system more effectively, right? And they try not to rock the boat, many of them. In the UK, on the other hand, the people I met were minorities within a minority, often from quite working class backgrounds. And so they, in, in addition to being exposed to, say, homophobia from their own communities, they were also subject to racism, you know, within wider British society. And, you know, the counter-terrorism legislation, they became exposed as brown-skinned Muslims, sometimes with physical, visible markers of being Muslim, if they were women and they wore hijab, or if they were men and had beards. You know, the, the state couldn't see that these are LGBT Muslims, they were still Muslim. And in some spaces, you know, that was the identity that was threatened. So this is what I mean by intersectional subordination. Like it's not one size fits all. People face risks differently depending on where they are and what other characteristics are, you know, interacting with their sexual identity. So you obviously talked already about some of the questions that the people that you interviewed grappled with. Uh, I'm wondering if you can elaborate on those a little bit more, but also talk about how you grappled with those same questions. I think this is where a disclosure of who I am becomes important as well. And it's especially important because the kind of research I did was qualitative. Um, it was ethnographic. It involves living with people, um, living amongst them, forming relationships with them, and in learning about their stories, also sharing my story with them and why I was interested in this. And why I am interested in this is that I identify as gay and Muslim myself, and I was born and raised in Malaysia, and I have moved to the UK. Um, I started my doctoral research on this uh, a year or two after I had moved to the UK. So I've experienced being a gay Muslim in Malaysia and being a gay Muslim in the UK. And so, and that's been a process for me, even 
you know, coming to name myself as a gay, coming to apply that label to myself and understand what it means to me and my own relationship with Islam, the kind of dominant view of Islam I grew up with, you know, the bits that I internalized, the bits that I rebelled against, the bits that I rejected. Those were things that I was asking the different gay Muslims I met to share with me to expose to me, you know, um, it was basically putting them under the spotlight. But I thought that it was only fair then to put myself under the spotlight as well. So every time I asked them, well, how did you come to identify as gay? I mean, that's a loaded question. So I had to think about that myself as well. I had to think, well, did this term always make sense to me? What kind of baggage does it have to me? Do I still like this label? You know, so every time I asked them those questions in interviews, it was less a question and answer. You know, sometimes they started interviewing me back. You know, we'd have a chat and them knowing that I also identify as gay and Muslim, they say, well, what do you think about this? What do you believe? And instead of being, you know, uh, a supposedly neutral and completely objective and unmarked researcher, I did share with them what I thought. But I also I was also really clear to say that, you know, I didn't want to impose my ideas on anyone. Like if they wanted to know what my feelings about certain things were, I would tell them. But I was really transparent about being a researcher and wanting to you know, um, center their experiences and give them voice in my research. So yeah, so that's what I mean. Um, yeah, when I say that I was grappling with the same questions that my participants, that, that I posed to my participants as well. Did you find it difficult at all to gain people's trust? I felt reading through this article that you mentioned sort of the time that it took to get inside these communities? Yes. I think in some ways it was really easy because, you know, just having lived as a gay Muslim in Malaysia, I, of course, knew other gay Muslims as well, men, women, and as I said before, you know, lots of trans friends and trans activists as well in Malaysia. But those were maybe people who were more like me already, you know, who had grappled with the same questions that I had grappled with. Um, we sort of had a comfort with each other. In Malaysia, it meant that we were middle class and we spoke English. You know, those were the sorts of people I knew and hung out with. So they were really easy to get in touch with. The people who were difficult to get in touch with were the people who were less like me, you know, who didn't speak English as their first language, who maybe came from more working class backgrounds. And especially there was a gender barrier. So with um, the women I wanted to reach out to, you know, that there are kind of... Um, I, I hesitate to call them lesbian communities in Malaysia, but I'll just use that as shorthand. But more working class Malay speaking lesbian communities in Malaysia that I I just had more trouble with connecting with. Um, and it was difficult gaining trust because people were like, you know, you might be Malaysian, 
you might be gay, you might be Muslim, but you're still doing a PhD in London. Like, what is this for? What are you going to say about us, right? Um, and the way that I bridged that was through the women I already did know who were my friends before, who had connections with them. So it's a lot more like, you know, it was it was a bit of, you know, snowball research, going through friends, going through acquaintances and asking them, well, who did you know? Who do you know that I could speak to? Um, in the UK, it was slightly easier because I got in touch with an LGBTQ Muslim organization here. Uh, called Iman at that time. And it was easier to gain the trust of the inner circle of that group because I started volunteering at their events and they knew my story, they knew who I was. So that that active circle of volunteers was really open to speaking to me. But even then, it was difficult to find the outer reaches of that community, the people who say maybe only existed online and didn't come to in-person events, right? So, yeah, there were easy bits in both countries and there were hindrances in both countries as well. So I guess going back to our earlier conversation about intersectionalism, the biggest barrier that you faced was class, it seems. Yeah, I think class is huge. And I think there was a generational barrier as well. In the UK, it was slightly easier to meet people who were younger than me because of this association with Iman and how it was attracting younger LGBT Muslims into its fold. Um, In Malaysia, by and large, it was class, but it was also age. I ended up meeting lots of people who were kind of in my age group. So I want to talk about one of the women that you interviewed. Uh, Her name is Ayi. She was a lesbian in her early 30s, and she actually opposed same-sex marriage. Uh, Can you elaborate on that interview? Yeah, I guess to elaborate on that interview, maybe let me tell you a bit about her and how I got to know her. So she's one of those people who wasn't a previous acquaintance of mine. And I got to know her through a friend. So a friend of mine is a bisexual Muslim woman in Malaysia, and she features in my research. So she was really keen to talk to me, and she was really supportive. So when I asked her, right, so who else do you think I can speak to? Um, She said, why don't you come and play futsal with us, you know, which is indoor football. And this is, you know, this this is a bit of a craze in Malaysia. It it has been for a while, and it certainly was when I was doing my research. So, you know, these young professionals work in the daytime, and then in the evening, they just book these pitches and just go and play, you know, indoor football and just hang out after that. So she belonged to a women's you know, football community, indoor football community. And she was like, yeah, we meet regularly. And quite a few of them are women who love other women. So why don't you come and just hang out and see if they're willing to talk to you? So I did. And that's how I got in touch with Ai, because Ai was there and she was, uh, she knew my friend. And when my friend said, oh, this is Shannon, he's my friend, you know, he's from the, he's doing a PhD in the UK. Does anyone want to talk to him? So Ayi wanted to talk. And I thought, great, you know, let's be. And Ayi's very masculine presenting, right? And had a girlfriend at the time who was very feminine presenting. 
Um, so yeah, so so we had a chat one day, and I barely knew them. And Ayi was quite outspoken. She was like, you know, take it or leave it. This is who I am. You know, I don't care what people think of me. You know, so I thought, okay, you know, very um, assertive and confident in her identity. But then when we started talking about LGBT rights, she was like, no, I don't like LGBT rights. I don't agree with them. And I don't agree with same-sex marriage. And so we got into a conversation about why not. And she said, look, you know, I am what I am, but I know that Islam says it's wrong and I don't want to challenge my religion. How I do think about this is that, you know, what, what I am might be wrong, what I'm doing might be wrong, but I, I answer to God and no one else. If anyone was to, was to change me, it would be God and no one else. And that's where her kind of take no prisoners attitude comes from, right? She's like, yes, you know, you might see what I'm doing as a sin, but it's my business. It's no one else's business. So in the context of Malaysia, she was very outspoken about, you know, hate crimes and hate speech. She's like, of course, this is wrong. Like, this should never happen, right? But then when you start framing LGBT activism as being about same-sex marriage, then she's like, no, but this is so irrelevant in my context and it's really unsafe. You know, so there's a pragmatic reason for why she doesn't like that sort of activism because it puts her at risk. It puts her partner at risk. And also then there's the belief element in what the religion actually says. And so she was unwilling to challenge the basis of religious, you know, dominant religious rulings on homosexuality. But she would use other elements within the religious tradition. Like, you know, that there's a strong tradition within Islam that you, you don't shame someone. You don't publicly humiliate them. You know, that's wrong. If people are minding their own business, a personal sin is no one else's business. So drinking alcohol might be wrong in Islam. And if someone is drinking alcohol in public, then maybe, you know, you have to do something about that. But if they're drinking in private, like, you know, there's a strand of thinking that says, then you don't barge in, like they're doing it in private. It's not up to you to expose them. So she's very much, you know, she, she takes that line in defending herself. Um, and also she's part of the ethnic majority. She's an ethnic Malay. So that comes with some privileges as well, political and economic privileges. And, you know, this was less explicitly stated, but she wasn't going to rock the boat in that way, you know? So she, she was doing this balancing act of being visibly who she was and giving people attitude if they didn't like it. But at the same time, she had some elements of conforming to the majority's values as well in terms of just not wanting to say anything about same-sex marriage. I think that's just such a fascinating interview because it illustrates so much of the nuance that you found through your entire research here. Yeah. And it was a learning experience for me as well, because she's not the only interesting one I met that I met another um, lesbian Muslim who was my friend before. And I think still is, even though we haven't been in touch for a while. 
but she'd been on a journey as well. So when I'd met her, like all those years ago in Malaysia, it felt like she was on the way to really reclaiming her identity openly as a lesbian woman and as a Muslim and as a feminist. And by the time I met her for, for this piece of research, she has started wearing the hijab and she started being, you know, conventionally more religious. And she said that she'd actually changed her mind about a few things, like the more quote-unquote liberal or progressive views she held as a Muslim. Before that, she was on the way to changing her mind. She was like, no, as a lesbian now, of course I believe I should be celibate, but I shouldn't have sex with another woman. That's wrong. You know, I'm not going to do that. But the, again, the difference was, you know, I asked her, I was like, but but what do you think the state should be doing about this? Should this be something that is imposed on everyone? Um, should it be a crime then for uh, people to have same-sex relations? And she said, of course not. I would never believe that. This is my journey and everyone deserves to have their own journey. So if someone else were to believe, no, as a Muslim, I have a right to have you know, sexual relations with my romantic partner who is also of the same gender. Like, you know, what she was saying was, I'm not going to interfere with that. That's up to them. Like, it's not my job. This is more for me. This is my, what I'm comfortable with personally. So that was a really ex interesting experience as well, having that discussion with her and the journey that she's been on and how she sort of navigates her personal, you know, moral convictions with, a view of what a good citizen is like you, you don't barge into other people's business that's really up to them right well dr shaw thank you so much for sharing all of these stories and for sharing your personal story with us today it's been really interesting thank you so much lee it's been a wonderful conversation i've had a really good time thank you Dr. Shannon Shaw, he's a visiting research fellow in theology and religious studies at King's College in London. His article is Ethnicity, Gender, and Class in the Experiences of Gay Muslims. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. 